My name is Katerina Buchowski. I'm the co-founder and co-executive of The Shadows Project, and we work on popularizing, preserving, and protecting Ukrainian culture. Hello, my beautiful friend. All right, so this is, look, this is like, uh, this is the first time I've ever done this on the podcast, but it is so timely because um, Katerina is in Poland slash in Ukraine. So she's bouncing back and forth. Um, um, and she is a Stanford student and she decided to leave school to go and help because she is half Ukrainian and half Brazilian. And I literally became Auntie Jody because I'm Auntie Jody to so many people, but I became Auntie Jody where I'm like, you know what? I just want to check on you every two weeks. I go it just because I want people to understand that a young person leaving school and literally on a pure purpose of helping her culture. And I, I just want people to keep seeing that you're okay. Um, so let's give an update because um, it's like every two weeks. So until you come back home to the States, every two weeks, um, you we're going to just touch base with you for like 20, 30 minutes to see what's going on, what's, what you've experienced. So la- two weeks ago, you just had arrived. So what's happened to you since then? Well, I've been, I was in Krakow for a while. Last week, I got to spend three or four days in Ukraine. So I went to leave a town in Western Ukraine. And it was my first time going to Ukraine since the war started. I stayed with a friend of mine, two friends of mine. And um, it was a very hectic three or four days because I was doing a lot of work while I was there. So I didn't really get a lot of time to really just enjoy being in Ukraine and a lot of reflection time. Um, so I'm hoping to go back because I think that those three days were not spent really absorbing what was happening. But I did almost every day that I was there, they did have uh, air raids. So I did go through the whole the initiation process, I think, of you know being a Ukrainian these days, which is going through an airstrike. So I familiarized myself with the air sirens, with the bomb shelters uh, very well, and kind of got to experience what my countrymen have been experiencing for over a month now. And it was um, a healthy dose of reality and kind of really helped contextualize what people were going through. Um, I think that the first time that I heard an air siren or the first few times I heard an air siren, they did not really bother me um, because the people there had been accustomed to them. And so even when like they go off in the middle of the day, people just kind of carry on with their day and don't really don't really think twice. So I just looked around and everyone was still having coffee. So I figured, OK, I'm going to be fine. But one one night they had an airstrike uh, and the sirens went off at around 4 a.m. And that was the first time that I actually did feel a little bit scared from the sirens because I was there by myself. There was no one on the streets. It was dark. I was sitting alone in bed and their sirens are extremely loud. And you're just sitting there with these purge like sirens going off. And there's this announcer voice saying, you know, warning citizens like we are under attack. Please take shelter. And you're sitting there and I'm trying to cover up my ears with a pillow to try and just drown it out because I want to go back to bed. And that was the first time that I was sitting there and I thought, you know, I really won't know until I know, like anything can happen. Like I'm sitting here and I'm brushing it off, but really, realistically, I'm not going to know that I'm in danger until it's too late. And that was a moment where I was sitting there and I had this weird feeling in the very, in my gut thinking, you know, maybe I, maybe I should go, maybe I should go to the bomb shelter. Maybe, maybe, you know, I should be safe because there's really kind of, 
if I'm not there, there's nothing I can do about it. It's not like I'm going to be watching and it's going to be coming in. Like, it's just going to hit me when it hits me and that's it. So laying there at night at like 4 a.m. that one night, I think I, I really kind of, that was the only time that I really did face the reality of the situation. And it was very scary. Um, I think that one of the things that we're watching a lot here, um, like I mean, everyone around the world is watching that people are staying at home because they have the same mentality. Whereas I could go where I go, you know what, this is my home. I want to stay right where it is. And even, even if you're thinking about, even for the people that aren't thinking about Ukraine, let's just think about if you're in, Al I mean, I'm in tornado alley in the United States, people are like, go, it's my home, whether it's a flooding, whether it's tornado until it hits, it hits. And then when it hits, people are like, oh crap, like this isn't happening. So I, that, that mentality is not like it's new. It's not um, where someone's watching a young person thinking, well, that's kind of cavalier. A lot of people just assume I'm going to trust the fates and I hope that nothing happens. And for some people, nothing happens. And for some people, something happens. And so that's always one of the moments where I like, I like the, the way that you said it, where you were with your friends and you're like drinking coffee and everything was fine. And then there was that, that moment of, I'm feeling, I, I'm scared. I'm in plain and simple. There's nowhere, like I'm scared. Um, you talked about how people are having coffee and things like that. So what area, in, I mean, like what area is it? So people could actually understand because you say the name of where you were, but people are not understanding where it is because they're seeing airstrikes, they're seeing bombings, they're seeing travesties, but they people still don't understand that there are parts of Ukraine that are not being touched yet. Um, and I say the keyword yet. Why is why are there areas not being touched yet? And where are they in respect to where you were? Yeah, so most of Western Ukraine is relatively untouched. So the city that I was in, Lviv, is in the very west of Ukraine. So it's really just two hours away by car from the Polish border. Like it's very much right near the Polish border. Um, and most of the west has been relatively untouched because Russia doesn't border or Ukraine doesn't have a border with Russia on the west. So the borders that Russia is attacking from is Belarus from the north, Russia from the east, Crimea from the south. So Western Ukraine borders with Poland um, and Romania and those countries that Russia does not have access to. So it's physically quite hard for them to get there because, you know, the troops have to come through the east in order to get to the west. And we've been doing a great job at stopping them. So the only real threat in Western Ukraine is aerial bombing because aerial bombing you can do from anywhere. Um, and Lviv has gotten bombed a few times, but very lightly compared to the rest of the country. And I think that that's because I think that Russia knows that Lviv is not a strategic target for them. I mean, it really doesn't make sense. They're not going to get their troops there until they can overrun the rest of the country. And that's, they're a long way from doing that. The best they can do is menace with a few bombs, but it doesn't, strategically, there are so many other cities that they would want to raise to the ground before they raise Lviv that it's relatively safe there because it just, it's really not a strategic point for them at this moment. So that's why people kind of ignore the sirens. And also the sirens go off in every county of Ukraine almost every day. So it's mostly just, you know, a precaution and our air defense is working. And sometimes you'll get texts uh, where you hear an explosion or you hear an, a loud noise and you're not sure what's going on. And then the mayor will text you saying, that loud noise you just heard is our air defense. We shot them down, everything's working as it should. And so you feel this, you know, you do feel protected and you feel safe in that because our boys are doing a great job. Okay. Um, 
in regards to um, you're with your friends that are in Ukraine, they're there, they're experiencing it every single day. You are going back and forth over the border. And we're going to talk about what, why you've been going back and forth. Um, what is the mentality of what you're seeing? I mean, like, how are the people in Western Ukraine seeing like the news, the way that um, other countries are reacting to this in regards of like individuals that are coming back that are like Ukrainian culture, being Ukrainian um, uh, individuals that are coming back from wherever they live in the world to help and support. So what is the conversation like when you are sitting down with your friends as well as their friends and their surrounding? Right, well, most of our conversations or all of our conversations revolve around various aspects of the war. I think that it very much is kind of a roller coaster. There's no one pulse on the ground because everyone's experiencing you know, the seven different stages of grief, everyone's at a different point in their processing, and it's very, very kind of complicated to get everyone on the same page. Um, I think that one of the conversations that I found um, inspiring or kind of hopeful was when I was leaving uh, to go back to Krakow, I was at the train station, and there are there's one line for the people that are getting on a train to go outside of Ukraine. And there's another line for people that are taking domestic trains. So the line to get out of Ukraine was me and maybe 20 other people. Meanwhile, hundreds of people getting on domestic trains. And so I think that, you know, the refugee crisis is, is inverting and people are really coming back. I mean, people, most of the questions that people were asking, first of all, was how to get to Kiev because Kiev had just been liberated when I was leaving. And I would be standing in line and naturally everyone wanted to get in my line because it was the shorter line. And people would be coming up to me saying, oh, can I get a ticket to Kiev in this line? And I'd say, no, this is the international line, but everyone was looking. That was the question of the day. How do I get to Kiev? And so that was really inspiring to me because obviously right at the beginning of the crisis, we saw those devastating pictures of thousands and thousands of refugees trying to get out and getting on the trains to Poland. And now, you know, it's packed domestically. Like people are trying to come back. People are, you know, finding their way back home. And that was, that was kind of incredibly hopeful for me because I, I, I really did see that there is more interest in going back to rebuild than there is to leaving everything behind and fleeing. And so that was, it was great to see that at the train station. I think that's one of the things that um, everyone, everyone is talking about how um, watching the Ukrainian people is the five is so inspirational. I mean, it's really inspirational to see how an entire community is saying, like, like, we will fight till the bitter end. Um, and we will make sure that everyone around the world understands why we are so passionate and why we love our culture, our country, our people, our homes. And so I think that's like by far just just to hear that makes me even feel better. But we've been watching that as well, just seeing actors and athletes and musicians. I mean, everyone's just like dropping what they're doing anywhere around the world. They're like, we're going back home. And yeah, I'm a ballerina. I'm a ballerina and I'm in full gear with my guns and I'm going to learn how to shoot a gun. And I think that's, um, that's just mind blowing. I mean, that's absolutely mind blowing. Um, let's talk about what you've been doing. So what, when you went there, like what, I know what you talked about, um, when you were, when we last spoke about how your number one goal is like basically keeping the culture alive by helping the museum. So how was it, what, how, what transpired while you were there? So I went and I managed to deliver the first shipment of equipment to the National Museum in Viv. So I brought a, a digitization scanner that they needed to digitize their archives and a few boxes of fireproof equipment. So I went and I brought that along with me and I dropped it off at the museum. 
Um, and they gave me a tour. It was very moving. They were very, very thankful for the help because not a lot of people are really reaching out to them at this time and museums are very much left in the dust at this time. So uh, the director of the museum gave me a tour and it was, it was really moving because he gave me a tour, everything's evacuated. So there's no more art in the museum. And he took me around and he insisted, I mean, I asked him if I could step in and just take pictures of the empty galleries for our website and stuff, but he insisted on taking me to each uh, exhibit room. And keep in mind, this is just empty walls. There's nothing there to see. And we went into each and every exhibit room. I spent maybe two or three hours at the museum and he gave me a full tour of empty walls. So we would go into each exhibit room. He'd show me a blank wall and he'd say, this wall, we used to have this painting. It looked like this. This is the story behind the painting. And it was just the biggest dissonance that I've experienced when, you know, someone's talking to you and they're giving you a tour and you're staring at a blank wall and they're telling you to imagine what used to be on the wall. And he's telling me, oh, this painting had this most beautiful shade of red and it was made at this time and they had this gold detailing. And I'm standing there looking at a white wall and I'm trying, trying, trying to picture what he's telling me. And he insisted on pretty much, you know, giving me a description of all his favorite works in each exhibit hall. And I'm looking at these blank, blank spaces and it's making me so angry to try and visualize this because I, I understand that as beautiful of a job as he did describing all of the pieces to me, I will never actually know what they look like until I see them because me describing, you know, there's the Virgin Mary wearing a red robe holding something. I mean, that image is going to mean a million different things to a million different people. And I was getting so frustrated thinking about the fact that all of these pieces, there, there's a potential that they're really only going to exist by word of mouth and they're only going to exist in our memories if they get destroyed. And every Ukrainian is going to have a different image of this in their minds. There's not going to be a unified culture and a conception of like what these artworks mean, because it's just, you know, it, it, the burden is on us to spread what they look like by word of mouth. And it was very frustrating because, you know, I, this is something that you want to share with your people and you want to be able to share with your countrymen. When I think of my favorite Ukrainian painting and I tell them, oh, the Katina painting is so beautiful. Every Ukrainian knows what that means. They say, yeah, it's great. And there could be a time when I tell them and I have to kind of explain and I know that they'll never really fully get it if they don't get to see it. And so it was a very moving experience and just reminded me how important it is to be able to bring in this protective equipment and try and preserve everything we can because I, I just can't imagine trying to describe how beautiful Ukrainian art is, you know, to my kids one day and not have them ever really know what that means. Um, how is he doing? I mean, like, I mean, from what you could see, like, I mean, I think that it was probably therapeutic for him just to have you there just to get more equipment um, and more protective gear for the, for the art, but also just to have you there because if he can visualize everything as it was, and he can describe it to a T to you, I mean, I mean, I could, I could, I could imagine it's like, these are his babies. I mean, this is like the museum where like, they, I, I just watched a, um, something on, it was 60 minutes or something, how um, at the Met, they're actually having the, the guards curate rooms because the guards are the ones that, see the artwork every single day. They can tell every single aspect of the pieces of art. And now imagine if you're the person that runs this, this museum 
and you know it like, I mean, you know them so well to every single color, to every single frame, to everything. So from what you could tell um, outside of him telling the photo and telling the, 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 I mean, describing what he was, what, what used to be on the walls, how did he, how did you see him doing? Like, I mean, as a person. I mean, I think that his, his eagerness and his insistence to take me through each of the rooms um, really kind of uh, gave me an insight into what he must be feeling because for him, you know, there's a risk that he loses everything. There's a risk that these museums lose everything. And like you said, these are his babies. These are things that he's curated over years. He's worked at that museum for decades. And I think that he was very, it was clear that he was very nervous about the fact that these things could be lost forever. And he wanted to pass it on to as many people as he could. So with each room that he took me in and all of the information that he dumped and all of the descriptions that he told me, there was this kind of anxiety behind it that you know more people need to hear and more people need to know so that this memory isn't lost and you know he would be he would be very intricately describing each painting and I think he he really wanted to drill it into me and have and ask me in a way to kind of preserve that for him as well because one more person knowing about it one more person thinking about it that's kind of you know prolonging its existence by a little bit and he was also just extremely thankful that there were people caring about this and bringing in equipment. So I, I sat down with him and again, in this idea of, you know, wanting to make sure that it's not all lost in history, we sat down in his office afterwards and he brought me out every single catalog uh, that the museum has. So these are piles and piles of books. And I sat down and he brought me this catalog and he said, look, like, remember that painting I told you about? This is what it looks like. Like, look at it, like really think about it, like remember it. And and we went through these catalogs for hours and he wanted me to take them all home with me. He said, please take them home, give them to the rest of your friends, your family members, like show them what this looks like. And I couldn't physically take them home because it was just a lot of books. I took a few home, but I couldn't, yeah. but he was really insistent and he was telling me, you know, if you can't carry them with you, like, let us ship them to you. Like, can we do this? Can we do that? And I was like, okay, I could really understand his urgency. Like he was not letting up, like he wanted these books to get out of the country and he wanted me to take them with me in any way or another, because, you know, that's how you keep these things alive. And so I could really tell the urgency behind everyone and the work they were doing. So what's next for you? Like, I mean, so you're going back, um, when? To Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, my mom's actually coming on Saturday to oh, good. And good, then... good, good. Is she okay with, I mean, she, oh my God, she must be so happy that she's coming. Yeah, she, yeah, she's, I think she's excited. And then I actually think we're going to go to Ukraine together um, in a few days. So she's coming on Saturday and then maybe on Monday or Tuesday, we'll go together because she has uh, some people she wants to see. So, okay. All right. Um, so what's next in regards of um, what, I mean, so what, what's next for you and your group? Well, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. We still have funds left over. We're still raising money. We're just going to keep buying the equipment. Um, we've settled into a rhythm, so we're doing pretty well. We have some electricity generators arriving today um, that are getting picked up and shipped to leave. So we're kind of getting in this rhythm and trying to help more and more museums. Beautiful. All right. So. Again, in two weeks, I'm going to check on you because this is what I do. Like, again, Auntie Jody's here. Um, um, I, but, you know, the thing is, like, well, I, it's not just me. I mean, obviously your parents and your family, but just like so, so that way your community knows that you're 
you're, you're healthy, you're fine, you're doing good. And so um, I, again, I will always keep saying, I commend you for what you're doing. I love that I've had this conversation with other people that I even mentioned, they're like, do you know, like, oh, I know, I've been interviewing a young woman that she's protecting the museum. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, the people who are our number one priority, I go, but there's the culture. I go, that will be lost if it's not protected. And someone thought of it. And I think that's something that a lot of look, a lot of people I've been talking about where they're like, I would have never thought about that. I go, I know. And this is why I love this podcast. <laughs> and this is why I love meeting you guys because people aren't thinking about that at all. That it's not something that's covered. And so just to be able to know that someone is doing a job um, that a lot of people, there are a lot of people on the ground that are like literally working really hard to keep the, the history, the stories, the artwork alive. I'm going to keep sharing your story. Um, but I really want you to um, just take care of yourself. I mean, and, and by the way, how are you taking care of yourself? And so the sleeping, are you sleeping? Are we eating? Like, what are we? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing all right. We're sleeping. We're eating. Um, I, I did some face masks the other day. I'm getting a haircut today, which I'm excited <laughs> for. Just a little, just to jazz it up a bit. So, so, all right, so good. You're still doing the thing because you're in an area where you're back in Poland. Just so everyone knows you're back in Poland. Um, in a safe area, but you're still working and getting things done. So I'm very, very happy to hear this. And I, I mean, and I have to say, I'm sure that some people will be so confused. They're like, well, she's in Poland. I go, she's going to Ukraine. She's doing fine. I go, it's not fine. It's just like you're in areas where it is better than most areas. And you are, I mean, you have to take care of yourself um, in any way you could possibly find. Because a, a lot of people, you see a lot of reporters and there are people still walking around going about shopping, going about going to coffee shops. But yeah, they're very aware of what's happening literally two or three hours away from them, but they're still um, living, they're still living. So I just wanted people to understand that there are so many different sides to the story and everyone is not just cavalier like, oh, look, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Um, and people are doing really, people are working hard and people are out there, um, but they are living and they're taking care of themselves as well. Yeah. All right, Kat, so I will see you in two weeks. Um, but you know, okay. every single time we're gonna end the same way. So if you had a personal ask and a professional ask, what would be your personal ask? And what would be your professional ask that you would say to anyone that's listening? Ooh, um, I have not thought about this since we last spoke. Professional ask uh, would probably be, um, well, we're gonna launch our website soon hopefully in the next few days so that i'll be able to link that and if it's up by the time that this podcast is up a professional ask would be to check out the website and see if you can help with donations or raising awareness for the museum uh personal ask uh look up bucha look up Athene, look up what's happening in Borodyanka in all of these cities in ukraine uh that are just being liberated and we're just seeing the scale of the atrocities and i want people to see that so look up bucha and take a look at what's happening there. Beautiful, thank you. Um, and when you get a chance, can you send me a couple of photos of the museum? Um, just so that way um, I can actually like put that on this podcast as well. So that way people see the wall, like me, what's happening. Because most people yeah. envision going to the museum and seeing something, but seeing an empty museum is something that most people aren't even, they don't, they don't put it in their mindset. So to be able to see yeah. an empty museum would probably be very helpful as well. Okay, absolutely. All right, beautiful. Thank you, my friend. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay, Bye. thank you.